Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 25, 2 Samuel chapters 15 and 16. Well, we're going to continue our uh, slow crawl through 2 Samuel 15 today. Because it's so laden with, with fundamental concepts and patterns that are vitally important to who we are in Christ. Now, we certainly won't go this painstakingly through the rest of the book, but the nature of this particular chapter compels me to take the needed time to extract the profound lessons that are built into these passages. Well, David... As a passive and self-indulgent as he had become, so backslidden, so prone to, to rash actions as was now his way, seems to have been jarred into action by the sudden rebellion of the kingdom of Israel as led by his son, Abishalom. And that same jarring also seems to have reawakened a sense of of humility and and repentance within him that reflected a a much earlier self that operated in a more righteous manner. So despite being the great warrior that he still was at heart, probably quite capable of mustering a substantial force of of loyal supporters to resist the rebels, David chose a different course. He chose to put his people ahead of himself. And when he heard that Absalom had won over the hearts and minds of a substantial segment of society throughout Israel, even within his own tribe, David knew that had he remained holed up in his capital city of Jerusalem, and more specifically the city of David, royal enclave, great destruction and death of the innocent would have been the result if it was attacked. No doubt David's mind would have wondered if perhaps since so many of his people eagerly accepted Absalom as king, then David was maybe no longer worthy of the throne. After all, such insurrection was promised by the prophet Nathan when the Lord took David to task for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah. David knew that at the least what was happening was God's will and part of the just punishment that was due him. So he determined he wasn't going to fight it Let's reread the last half of 2 Samuel chapter 15 to get get our bearings for today's lesson. We're going to read from verses 17 through the end. Page 350 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. The king set out with all the people after him, but they waited at the last house for all his servants to pass by him in review. All the Kriti and the Peliti and all the Gitim, 600 men who had accompanied him from Gat, passed in review before the king. Then, king, then the king said to Itai the Giti, You too? Why are you going with us? Go back 
and stay with your king since you were both a foreigner and in exile from your own place. You arrived only yesterday. Should I ask you to wander around with us? There's no telling where I may go. Return and take your kinsmen back with you. Grace and truth be with you. But Itai answered the king, As Adonai lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king may be, whether for death or for life, your servant will be there too. Go, move along, said David to Itai. And Itai the Gittite moved on, accompanied by all of his men and the little ones with him. And the whole country wept and wailed as all the people left. And when the king crossed the Vadi Kidron, all the people crossed too, heading towards the desert road. Sadok also came, accompanied by all the Levites bearing the ark for the covenant of God. And they set the ark of God down, but Abiatar went up until all the people had finished leaving the city. And the king said to Sadok, Carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in Adonai's sight, he will bring me back and show me both it and the place where it's kept. But if he says, I am displeased with you, then here I am. Let him do to me whatever seems good to him. And the king then said to Sadok the Kohen, Do you see? Return to the city in peace. Your two sons with you. Akimaatz, your own son, and Yehonatan, the son of Eviatar. I will wait on the desert plains until a message with new information comes from you. So Sadok and Evitar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem and stayed there. David continued up the road to the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, head covered and barefoot. And all the people with him had their heads covered and wept as they went up. And one of them told David, Achitophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, Adonai, please turn Achitophel's advice into foolishness. And when David reached the top of the ascent, where it was customary to worship God, Hushai the Archie came to meet him with his tunic torn and earth on his head, and David said to him, If you go on with me, you'll become a burden to me. But if you go back to the city and tell Avshalom, King, I'll be your servant, just as I was your father's servant in the past, so now I will be your servant, then you'll be able to frustrate Akitophel's advice for me. You have Sadok and Ebiatar, the priests, there with you. So whatever you hear from the king's house, you tell to Sadok and Ebiatar, the Kohanim. Their two sons, Ahitophel, uh, Ahimaatz, the son of Sadok, and Yohanatan, the son of Aviatar, are there with them. Through them, send me everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city when Absalom was about to enter Jerusalem. Well, the king and his followers were fleeing eastward down through the Kidron Valley, up and over the Mount of Olives, eastward towards the wilderness. A group of 600 of his loyal personal bodyguard were led by a foreigner, probably a former Philistine, named Etai. And as they passed in review before David, he took Etai aside 
And he offered him the opportunity to go back and not become embroiled in an uncertain future attached to a deposed king. In verses 19 and 20, David tells Itai that he has no obligation to stick to David since he is not a Hebrew and that he is essentially free to dissolve the covenant of loyalty with David and instead serve the coming anti-king. David also reminds Itai that he is only a relatively recent newcomer to Israel. Now most of our Bibles say that Itai came only yesterday. But that is too rigid an interpretation of the Hebrew word temol, which, which means yesterday only in the sense of not, not very long ago. And we also see that David calls Itai a nokri and a gole, an alien stranger and an exile. Thus, Itai, see, he hadn't become a national member of Israel. Instead, he chose to remain in his foreign identity rather than becoming an official Hebrew. But as a Philistine who had thrown his loyalty to David, he was now an enemy of his former government and thus an exile from his own homeland. Etai was in a strange situation. He didn't want to give up being a Gentile. And yet, he had chosen to give his allegiance to God's anointed king, a Jew. Interestingly, David was satisfied with this Gentile's loyalty and didn't require Etai to become a Jew in order to serve him. Well, David tells Etai he can't promise any kind of a known or profitable earthly future for Etai and for his fellow kinsmen if he follows David into the wilderness. So he gives Etai permission to go back and serve Absalom and to do so with David's blessings. Now, most of our Bible versions have David saying to Etai, may mercy and truth, or may grace and truth go with you. In Hebrew it says, may chesed and emet go with you. This is no condescending or merely courteous blessing that David has offered Etai. Chesed is a word that has a deep spiritual sense to it, much as does the Hebrew word shalom. Chesed and shalom are words that describe a condition or a state of being and relationship that can only come from a divine source. Chesed as a concept, means that it needs definition to be properly understood. It's a concept that contains many attributes, among which is grace. The word grace is commonly used, therefore, to translate chesed as is also kindness or loving kindness. And and while those English words are not wrong, it doesn't necessarily impart to us 
the depth and the breadth of what's being proposed. This knowledge of the Hebrew idea of chesed is important for us to grasp on several levels, mainly because a thorough understanding, uh, rather misunderstanding or ignorance of chesed is what has led to a corrupt man-made theology that says that grace is a New Testament aspect of God that didn't even exist prior to the advent of Yeshua. And that grace is the basis for relationship between God and mankind makes the former Old Testament law relationship between God and mankind faulty, irrelevant, and obsolete for the believer. Therefore, although we've discussed it before, I'm going to take a few moments to detour. Perhaps, hopefully, add a little more to the fascinating topic of chesed because it has so much impact on the relationship between God and man in all eras. Now, as I said, it's a word that's difficult to translate because it's more a concept than a word. And as such, it has a whole range of meanings that must be folded together to try to define it. Let me give you an illustration of the issue. If we describe our typical mode of driving to work, we might say we drive to work in a car. But what's a car? car is a device that consists of many identifiable components. It has an engine, it has four wheels, it has seats on it, it's got a roof to keep the weather out, it's got a transmission, a whole lot more. And all together, these components form a car. Now if I told you, I get to work by driving an engine, I wouldn't be entirely wrong because all cars have engines. But an engine, as important as it is, and arguably might be the key component, is but one of several components that when assembled creates a unit called a car. So saying that I drive a car to work gives you a much more complete, a lot more useful mental picture and understanding of this transportation device than saying, I drive an engine to work. It works the same with the concept of chesed. Included in the total concept of chesed are such components as faithfulness, kindness, love, mercy, truthfulness, and grace. And each of these components is a little bit different, but all of them plus several more, when taken together, make chesed. Now, chesed is so fundamental in God's idea of relationship that it transcends even the covenant relationship and it may be thought of as perhaps the prime and overriding virtue in ancient Israel for any relationship. 
Thus we'll find in the book of Ruth that Ruth exhibits great chesed towards her mother-in-law Naomi even though, strictly speaking, there was no covenant between them. And at the same time, the concept of chesed defines our right attitude and our right behavior. Defines the attitude and behavior of partners in a covenant relationship that we should have one towards the other. Now, the Mosaic Covenant between Yehovah and Israel is itself an act of chesed of the God of Israel towards His people. Yehovah keeping His promises to Israel and to King David, even though they often transgressed those covenants, was also an act of chesed. But God's chesed always calls for reciprocal behavior. Thus, Israel is to respond by maintaining chesed towards the covenants and towards God. Thus, in a, a simple sense, chesed can be thought of as a loving loyalty with all of its necessary components on the part of Yehovah towards his people Israel, but also on the part of Israel towards their God, to whom they have made covenant, and thus they've obligated themselves. Just as there is no single word or direct concept equivalent in English for chesed, there's also no direct Greek equivalent. So since the most ancient manuscripts we have for the New Testament are written in Greek and only then translated into English, this complex concept of chesed has generally been reduced by translators to only a single attribute of grace. Don't think I'm saying that grace is a bad translation or that it's a wrong translation. It's just too narrow. It's too incomplete to give us all the meaning that we need to understand about this divine transaction. See, the church has had what is to me an annoying tendency to reduce many enormous and complex biblical concepts into overly simplified, often single word sound bites called doctrines. And it robs us of such critical information. It can also send us down rabbit trails. For instance, even God himself lately has been reduced in many denominations who seek to make him appear more attractive to but a single attribute love and certainly God is love but that's not all he is he's also healing he's wisdom he's mercy but he's also wrath and he is judge and he is warrior and he's the lawgiver 
So to reduce God to only a single attribute, whichever one you want to choose, and to eschew all the others gives us a very incomplete, a very limited understanding of His nature. And this can have a profound consequence on our view of who God is and what our relation with Him ought to be. So just as the underlying basis for all covenant relationship has always been chesed, as believers in Yeshua, it would help us to see that we are saved not merely by the single attribute of grace, but by the enormity of God's chesed with all of its attributes and components. All of them. Why do I say that? Because grace is but one of several components of chesed. And grace may be that all-important car engine, but it's not the whole car. Grace, as we tend to narrowly define it, offers but a fraction of the overall concept of chesed and therefore of what is behind our saving relationship with Christ and how we obtain it, how we maintain it. And when we finally grasp that, then we see that regardless of the era, regardless of which testament or covenant we're exploring, chesed is and has always been the basis for relationship between worshiper and God. And why is that? Because God never changes. But our more thorough understanding of chesed as an overriding biblical principle, also helps us to revive and underscore the nearly extinct premise within the church that we as Messiah's followers have obligated ourselves to God, not just Him to us. And we did that when we first signed on to that covenant that redeems us the one sealed in Messiah's blood. And this obligation that's all wrapped up in the concept of hesed involves duties and obedience towards God and towards His commandments. Not merely our tacit acknowledgement of our desire for this relationship. As the New Testament Scripture passage from last week's lesson that comes from the mouth of our Savior Himself, so plainly and forthrightly states in Matthew 7.21, Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, only those who do what my Father in heaven wants. Do is an action word. To do goes beyond passive belief or promise, and instead it speaks of an obligation from God to us and from us to God. And as further evidence of the reciprocal nature of chesed and of the duties and obligations that we take on when we sign on to God's covenant and thus the basis for our relationship with Christ is formed and defined, we have these words 
from Yeshua's biological half-brother, who growing up in the same household as Yeshua probably heard these words pronounced so very often. We find them in James 2, verses 14 and 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but has no actions to prove it? Is such a faith able to save him? Thus, faith by itself, unaccompanied by actions, is dead. So in our story in 2 Samuel 15, the anointed king of Israel offers this Gentile foreigner, Etai, Hesed. Even if Etai chooses not to live among the anointed king and his Israelite followers. Why? Because even though the bond of covenant is strong, the follower of the king is not a robot. He doesn't lose his free will to disavow the covenant and to go and follow another leader. Etai, in his free will, chooses to continue following his Jewish king unto death, if it need be. Hesed is being reciprocated. Hesed is being offered to Etai, so Etai responds in Hesed towards David. Now, hopefully, all this is conjuring up a shadow and a pattern of the believer's relationship with God through Messiah and of the always present temptation to fall away, to follow another popular leader that will be especially manifested when the Antichrist appears. But it gets even more interesting as our story continues. Verse 23 speaks of the grieving procession. And look at your Bibles here. Verse 23 speaks of the grieving procession of David's loyalists crossing the Kidron Valley heading towards the desert road. Now almost all English translations have some variation of this meaning. But some ancient manuscripts written in other languages, and also modern scholarly re-examination of the Masoretic Hebrew texts, gives us some pretty enlightening insight. It seems as though the Masoretic texts have a few minor copyist errors regarding the description of the exact route that this grieving procession took over the Mount of Olives. The extant Hebrew copies are obviously misspelled such that whether Jewish or Christian, uh, a scholar has to try to figure out what the misspelled words mean because taken exactly as they're written, they're just gibberish. And the new understanding taken with the reading from some of the older manuscripts makes this verse read something like this. However, the king remains standing in the Kidron Valley while his entire army 
passed on before him along the way of the wild olive trees towards the desert. Now stay with me. In other words, the context of the reference to Itai's army is to the group of foreign mercenaries led by the Gentile Itai and the route that they took across the Mount of Olives. It was a certain pathway that was locally known as the way of the wild olive trees. There's nothing earth shattering about that. That see the Mount of Olives is huge. And so there were several routes to cross it, depending on, on which compass direction you intended to travel as you left Jerusalem. The various pathways were given informal names. Now this hardly seems like an important modification to the standard translation of this verse, except when we recall a rather cryptic statement of St. Paul's that incorporates the same idea. And I think that it was probably from this well-known story among the Jews of this of his day, the story of David fleeing Jerusalem, and of the probably still existing pathway across the Mount of Olives in Paul's day, known as the Way of the Wild Olive Trees, that Paul was using as an understandable and a simple illustration of how Gentile foreigners can become participants in Israel's saving covenant with Israel's God and yet they don't stop being Gentiles. Let me point out that in the Bible as elsewhere the purpose of an analogy or an illustration is to use a commonly understood thing to help explain something that's perhaps more difficult to understand, such as the uses of my car illustration in explaining hesed. Listen to St. Paul in Romans 11, 16-24. Now if the hawa offered his first fruits as holy, so is the whole loaf. And the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive were grafted in among them and have become equal shares in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. If you do boast, though, remember that you're not supporting the root. The root's supporting you. So you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, keep your place, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and His severity. On the one hand, severity towards those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you. Provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they don't persist in their lack of trust, will be grafted in because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree 
and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? And thus I think we have the metaphorical connection between uh, being made by Paul between wild olive trees and Gentiles. Right? That I think may be based on the commonly known story of the pathway of the wild olive trees. That Itai, the Gentile foreigner, voluntary, voluntarily followed in order to maintain his relationship with David, God's anointed king, who was a shadow and a type of Messiah. And the God principle it reveals is that our spiritual chesed towards Jehovah and to his anointed king and thus God's chesed towards us which preceded it all does not mean that a person must change their physical and national earthly identity in order to follow the anointed king. A Gentile can trust in the God of Israel and faithfully follow Israel's anointed king and can be made part of Israel's saving covenant by means of God's hesed and all without becoming or rather being a physical Hebrew or by becoming a naturalized Israelite. Itai did it. His men did it. And those among us who are Gentiles can do it. And if we're already believers, we've already done it. Let's move on. Verse 24 gives us this tantalizing piece of information. It says, The high priest Sadok suddenly showed up followed by a procession of Levites carrying the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. And the Levites set the Ark down and they waited while all the people who were going with David passed by as they crossed over the Kidron Valley. Although it doesn't directly say so, I suspect that the setting the ark down was there was meant to imitate that day. Several centuries earlier, when the Levites carried the ark to the center of the Jordan River, as Israel first entered the Promised Land, led by Joshua, and waited until all the people crossed over. Then they picked it up and continued on. What makes this tantalizing is that we see a second high priest, Eviatar, also involved. Before David was king, Eviatar was the high priest. But by all accounts, he was illegitimate. He had been installed by King Saul, but that isn't what made him illegitimate. It's that he was a descendant of Eli, who was of the Levite line of Ithamar. 
But the line of Ithamar wasn't supposed to be the line of high priests. High priests were supposed to be descended from Eleazar. Apparently at some point David recognized this problem. So he appointed Sadok to the high priesthood. But he didn't remove Eviatar. Sadok was indeed of the legitimate high priestly line of Eleazar. But as we've seen, David had become the consummate politician. And so he played fast and loose with the Torah commandments. And so apparently he figured that it would be less divisive among his subjects to merely add Sadok but not replace Evutar. So the results were that Israel had co-high priests at this time. King Solomon would remedy this odd situation a few years later. Well, David told Sadok and Evutar that the ark should not accompany the procession into the wilderness. They should take it back to its resting place in Jerusalem. There were two reasons for doing this. First, is that David wanted to have the loyal ears of Sadok and Eviatar and their two sons, who were next in line for the high priesthood, in Jerusalem to report the goings-on to David while he's in exile. Second, is that David figured that if God had in his will deposed David, then David had no right to the presence of the ark. The ark was for the benefit of Israel. Therefore, the ark would be needed by the new king, Absalom, as a key element of his rule over Israel. Well, after the matter of the ark of the covenant was handled, this weeping procession continues on up the way of the wild olive trees towards the summit of the Mount of Olives. David and all the people had their heads covered and walked barefoot. This was a standard sign of contrition and repentance, thus acknowledging that what was occurring was God's justice for trespasses committed and that they accepted God's judgment. But then David got news that devastated him all over again. His trusted advisor and counselor, Akitophel, as among those who conspired against David. Now recall that Akitophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. And David instinctively shouted out a quick prayer towards the heavens. Yehovah, please turn Akitophel's advice into foolishness. In other words, David pleaded with God to take Akitophel's formerly outstanding and sage advice and when used for Absalom's counsel, turn it into bad advice. And as David reached the summit of the Mount of Olives, Hushai the Archite met him there. Apparently there was some kind of, of a formal worship place at the top of the Mount of Olives, as there was in a number of places throughout Israel as well. And while the main sanctuary seems to have been at Gibeon, at this moment, it didn't appear to carry much weight. Anyone of stature 
created their own altar, their own worship center to Yehovah. And the archaeological finds of recent years seems to verify that private worship centers and altars were erected all over Israel. Well, this Hushai was a very old man and was called friend of David. He too was grieving and penitent, clothing torn, dirt thrown over his head and shoulders when David spotted him. But David told him that it would be better that Hushai stayed at the palace because A, his elderly state would have made his very presence a burden on David who needed to move quickly to avoid danger. And B, Hushai could be useful as a spy for David inside Absalom's administration. David tells him that he won't be alone in this endeavor, that Sadok and Eviatar will remain there with him as well. The plan was Hushai would give information to those two high priests who would pass it along to their two sons who would then take, take it to David. Okay? Let's move on to chapter 16. We're just going to barely get into it. Chapter 16. When David had gone a little past the summit, there was Siva, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a pair of donkeys saddled and on them 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 pieces of summer fruit, and a skin of wine. And the king said to Siva, What do you mean by these? And Ziva replied, The donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit are for, for the young men to eat. And the wine is for those who collapse in the desert to drink. And the king asked, Where is your master's grandson? And Ziva answered the king, Oh, he's staying in Jerusalem because he said, Today the house of Israel will restore my father's kingship to me. And the king said to Ziva, Everything that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziva answered, I bow down before you. May I find favor in your sight, my lord king. And when King David arrived at Bahrim, there came out from there a man from Shaul's family named Shimi, the son of Gerah. And he came out pronouncing curses and throwing stones at David, all the king's servants. Even though the, the uh, even though all the people, including his bodyguards, surrounded him left and right, and when Shimi cursed, he said, "Get out of here! Get out of here! You killer! You good for nothing! Adonai has brought has uh, brought back on you all the blood of the house of Saul. You usurped his kingship, but Adonai has handed over the kingdom to Absalom, your son." Now your own evil has overtaken you because you are a man of blood. And Avishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why allow this dead dog to curse my lord the king? Just let me go over and remove his head. And the king said, Do you sons of Zeruiah and I have anything in common? Let him curse. If Adonai tells him, Curse David, who has the right to ask, why are you doing it? David then said to Avishai and all his servants, Look, my own son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. So how much more now this Benjamite 
Leave him alone. Let him curse if Adonai told him to. Maybe Adonai will notice how I'm treating him and Adonai will reward me with good instead of his curses. So David and his men went on their way while on the opposite hillside Shimei kept pace with him, cursing, throwing stones, flinging dust as he went. And the king and all the people with him arrived exhausted. So he rested there. Meanwhile, Avshalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem. Akitophel was with him. Hushai, the archite, David's friend, came to Absalom and said to him, Long live the king! Long live the king! And Absalom asked Hushai, Is this how you show kindness to your friend? Why didn't you go with your friend? And Hushai replied, No, but whomever Adonai and this people and all the men of Israel choose, his I will be. And with him I will stay. Moreover, whom should I serve? Should, shouldn't I serve in the presence of his son? Just as I have served in your father's presence, so I will be in your presence. And Absalom said to Akitophel, Give your advice as to what we should do. And Akitophel answered Absalom, Go in and sleep with your father's concubines, the ones he left to take care of the palace. All Israel will hear that your father utterly despises you and this will strengthen the position of all those who are on your side. So they set up a tent for Avshalom on the roof of the palace and Avshalom went in to sleep with his his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. In those days, Akitophel's advice was regarded as highly as if someone had sought out the word of God. It was this way with Akitophel's advice both to David and to Absalom. Now I'm only going to set the stage for this chapter today. We're going to get into it more deeply the next time we meet. But this is another place where it would have been best to have no division between chapters. The last verse of chapter 15 just flows directly into the first verse of chapter 16. Thus chapter 16 begins with this procession still on the Mount of Olives, still following the same pathway. And what we're seeing is David meeting a whole string of folks as he exits Jerusalem. He meets Itai the faithful Gentile leader of a contingent of 600 armed men. He's also met Sadok and Eviatar, the co-high priests, and and sent them along with the ark back into the city as informers. An anonymous person then told David of Akitophel's treachery. This was immediately followed by the faithful Hushai, who agreed to be a spy for David in Absalom's royal court. Now David undoubtedly expects to meet more loyalists who are rallying to his support on his way out of town. But he's surprised when Ziva, Mephibosheth's servant, approaches David with needed supplies and gifts for his exile. Now considering the state of emergency and the catastrophic event that's unfolding, David expected that even the lame Mephibosheth, whom he had treated with such chesed, 
would have come himself instead of sending his servant. David had plucked Mephibosheth from hiding out of fear over in the Transjordan and brought him safely to David's palace, guaranteed him security and prosperity, supplied his every need. He even turned over Saul's considerable estate to him. So it would have seemed natural for Mephibosheth to now come to David in his time of need. Instead, here stands Siva, the Gentile estate steward, armed with a slanderous story about Mephibosheth. We'll continue this next time.